Good evening, dear colleagues in Christ. When Father Kevin McKenna called and advised me he had just returned from the meeting of the Board of Governors, I conjured up in my mind a stack of mail on his desk with a complex case in consecrated life sitting squarely on top, returning him to canonical normalcy. Rather, he shocked me with the Board's decision that I was to receive the role of law award. I recall stammering, but Kevin, I don't deserve that. To which he replied, well, Rose, obviously others think you do, and that is our decision. After our brief conversation, I stood a little disorientated in my office, slowly realizing that perhaps I did deserve the award, not because of any merit on my part, but like Mary, because God's bountiful grace manifested through so many persons who have brought me to this moment. During my 25 years as a canonist, I am ever conscious that I stand on the shoulders of giants and walk among giants in our profession. I am deeply grateful to all of you and to many absent from this assembly, some who have gone before us, who encouraged, supported, and challenged me as a canonist. Those who have gone before us, my former Superior General, Sister Alice Anita Murphy, had the wisdom to assign sisters to theological and canonical studies at the crest of conciliar renewal. With her presentation, John Cardinal Crowe appointed me to the Office of Vicar for Religious in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia and exemplified extraordinary administrative skills that validated all Father Robert Kennedy taught me in church administration. Father John Roof, her redemptor's priest, succeeded Monsignor, now Bishop Galante, as vicar for religious and coaxed me into the complexities of computer technology. Father Jim Provost invited me to the department, now School of Canon Law, at the Catholic University of America, guiding me from my fledgling years to the tenure process. Those remaining with us, I am deeply grateful to my present General Superior, Sister Patricia Kelly, for permitting me to continue teaching canon law, to Bishop Joseph Galanti for introducing me to the practice of law for consecrated persons. How can I thank my sister in nature and grace present with us at the, this evening and representing our congregation. Peggy has been a constant support to this lone canonist in our religious institute. I am deeply grateful to the community and the School of Canon Law, Fathers Robert Kennedy, John Beale, Ronnie Jenkins, Robert Caslin, and Sister Elisa Renere, whose witness and friendship render the teaching of ministry a joy. My students, past and present, have taught me so much, enabling me to, better, to be a better teacher. Finally, I could not end this expression of gratitude without singling out one who has been my teacher, my friend, and my colleague. It is no surprise to this assembly that Monsignor Thomas Green deserves my special gratitude. Without his careful mentoring, ceaseless challenging, and unfailing friendship, I would not be standing here this evening. 
During 25 years as a canonist, I have focused my research and practice in consecrated life, an area little traversed by most of you. I delight in advising my students and anyone else who cares to listen that this part of the law is to the code what the Psalter is to the Bible. A scripture scholar once observed that if all the books of the Bible were lost, with the exception of the Psalter, the Bible could be reconstructed by studying the prayer of God's people in the Psalms. This seems somewhat analogous to Book 2, Part 3 of the Code. In our class on consecrated life, we need to be familiar with public juridic persons, church governance, elections, postulations, ecclesiastical offices in Book 1, associations of the faithful, Roman curial offices, diocesan structures, and the authority of bishops in Book 2, catechetics, missionary activity, and Catholic education in Book 3, the faculties of clerical religious for sacred ministry in Book 4, temporal goods, their administration and alienation in Book 5, sanctions and dismissing of man and were mandating the dismissal of a religious in Book 6, and the process for recourse against administrative decrees uh, for the removal of pastors in Book 7. So you see, we who serve the church in this specialized area of canon law are not enjoying our little island divorced from the rest of you. However, it is not any topic of my specialty that I wish to address this evening. Rather, as I reflected on the past year and the tragic issue of sexual abuse of clergy that shocked our Christian sensitivities and tested our faith, I feel compelled to call all of us to a renewal of commitment to our canonical vocation and the code of professional responsibility. In his apostolic constitution, Sacre Discipline Leges, Pope John Paul II reminds us that canon law addresses the saving mission entrusted to the church. Our juridical legislative tradition is rooted in sacred scripture and canon law is an indispensable instrument to ensure harmony in the lives of individuals, society, and the church's activity. Canon law provides that the mutual relations of the Christian faithful are ordered in accord with justice and charity with the rights of individuals well-defined and guaranteed. We have committed, indeed professed ourselves through our code of professional responsibility to the rule of law in the church. I ask that we renew this profession in this most critical period for the church. Our neglect of the non-negotiable rule of law in response to the admittedly heinous and objectively immoral crime of abusing children or minors can and will place us in a position antithetical to our canonical ministry. If we, trained in the law, stand in silence while allegations are treated as crimes, reputations are irretrievably lost, before a formal trial, grave complaints are reviewed by unskilled persons, the rights of the accused to advocacy, defense, and 
recourse are denied, therapeutic evaluations are ordered prior to a penal process, statutes of limitation and the non-retroactivity of law are forgotten, and the mitigating circumstances lessening imputability and tempering penalties are neglected. We have failed in our ministerial vocation. There is no place in our church for zero tolerance of persons. If there were, Christ would not have come. Mary would not be our tainted nature, solitary boast. Peter would not be rock. The apostles would not be the pillars of the church. And Mary Magdalene could claim no date in the sanctuary cycle. Indeed, we would not be convened this week to discuss a law prescribed for people of God that are simo justi epicatrices. I acknowledge this evening and I am deeply graced through the persons God has placed in my life. Let us recommit ourselves as canonists to the rule of law and our code of professional responsibility. Those we serve deserve no less. Then we will surely be the persons we are destined to become through baptism and our canonical calling. The poet Gerald Manley Hopkins describes our vocation beautifully. The just one justices keeps grace that keeps all the goings graces. Act in God's eyes what in God's eyes you are, Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father, through the features of your faces.